turn with me, if you will, please, to Hebrews chapter 4. As we come to this fourth chapter, which is really a continuation of the argument or the warning that began in chapter 3. Chapter 3 and 4, for the most part, stand as a unit together, especially uh, through the passage we read today. That is verse 13. Uh, they stand as a unit talking about this warning. Be careful, be diligent. Even fear, he uses the word here in, in this chapter, in this beginning of this chapter, uh, about whether or not you're going to enter into that promised rest or not. It's an important uh, understanding. It's an important thing to see that the writer of Hebrews is vitally and carefully concerned about the spiritual condition of those who he is writing to. I think it's also important that we remember something here. We as Gentiles, uh, if you will, living in our day, hear this and we hear it, I think, through different ears than what the readers of this letter, the readers of this sermon, uh, heard thousands of years ago. That is, we tend to hear it, uh, you know, in a sort of a, a Sunday schoolized version of, of what's being said here. We understand a little bit of the, the history of, of redemption, the history of the Bible. But sometimes we fail to realize that those who were hearing this were Hebrew believers. They were Jewish believers. They had come out of Judaism, come out of the, the rituals and, and the organized Judaism, and had put their faith in Jesus Christ. That was not an easy thing to do. That brought about great suffering in their life. It brought about suffering from the world and their fellow countrymen. It brought about suffering from their families. It brought about suffering from all those who knew them and so they were living in a state of suffering a state of uh, of difficulty when they heard this message given to them we had an interesting time this past week in uh, in louisville at together for the gospel uh, several of us did and one of the things that was said that really resonated with me and struck me was that Every, and I remember hearing this from a, pastor, from a professor in seminary, but, you know, you forget a lot of things you hear in seminary. Uh, but I, I remember hearing a professor say this at one time, and it just sort of clicked again. But he said, you know, every pastor ought to be preparing his congregation for suffering. Every pastor ought to be preparing his congregation for suffering. Because in reality, within the congregation, at any given time, uh, you have three types of people. You have people who are... Uh, who, who are just coming out of suffering of some sort. You have people who are in the middle of some sort of suffering. And you have people who probably, or who no doubt, are about to enter some type of suffering. So uh, in, in reality, we living in this world, we talked about last Sunday morning how the only thing Christ really promised us was suffering in this world. And, and the writer of Hebrews is telling them that is a reality and that is a part of life, but that is not the whole story. Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land and in entering into that promised land they entered into what was referred to as the rest of God a rest just as God as, as the writer will talk about in a minute just as God after creation he created he worked he labored for six days and on the seventh day he rested that there is a rest for those who are our disciples of Jesus Christ there is a heavenly rest and there is a present rest for those who are in Christ now, now sometimes these these readers here knew about the rest 
They knew that God rested on the seventh day. They knew also that Joshua had led their ancestors into the promised land, and that was called a rest. And for many of them, that's what it was. We have Palestine. We have a land of rest. We have a land of plenty. We have a land where God has blessed us, and the rest has been entered into, and that's it. But the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that the rest that we have is not fully recognized or fully fulfilled in this lifetime, even as Christians. We are into a rest in Jesus Christ, but that is not the ultimate. That is not the final thing. There's a rest that is greater. There's a rest that is yet to come. So in one sense, we have what most of our eschatology is, that is, end-time views as Christians, we have the, the already but not yet. We already have a rest in Jesus Christ, but we do not yet have the totality of it and the fullness of it, which will not come until we see him face to face and stand in his presence in glory. I want you to hear what the writer says as he writes to these Hebrew believers, finishing out the thought about the believer's rest. Verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fail though through following the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. In other words, separating what we can't separate. Both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This is the word of God. You know, as we look at that and we hear this 
discussion back and forth about entering his rest, swearing in his wrath that they shall not enter the rest and, and saying today is the day to enter the rest and, and yet we know there is yet a Sabbath rest remaining for the people of God, it, it can become somewhat confusing if we're not careful because it seems as though as these Hebrew believers looking back the, the writers saying understand this they walked as Hebrews they walked as Israelites they walked and they, they experienced all the rituals they went into all the synagogue worship and all the temple worship they went through all the right things but they, they entered in they did not enter in to the rest or the relationship at any time during that they were very religious oh man they were very religious they did everything just right they did all that they could, and yet that what they could do was not the key to what it meant to have salvation. Last Sunday morning, I mentioned just a little bit of a, a personal testimony about how I was baptized, prayed the right prayer, walked the right aisle, did all the right things when I was 12 years of age, and yet it was not until I was 19 and a, a college student that I really encountered the living Lord through the work of His Holy Spirit and was really converted. And that's a pretty good example of what was taking place with these Israelites. They did all the right things. They did them very sincerely. And we can do a lot of things very sincerely and never enter into that rest, never into that, enter into that reality, never into the, enter, enter into that fellowship and that relationship that comes from a real encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's concerned about with these people. He's saying, listen, in verse 1, he starts out very strongly, therefore let us fear. Let us fear if in, in, indeed while a promise remains of his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. So there ought to be a fear in our hearts. There ought to be a diligence in our hearts about realizing and recognizing and seeking assurance and knowing that we really do belong to him. There ought to be a casualness about salvation. There ought not be a casualness about our relationship with Christ. There ought to be an intensity about it. There ought to be a fear about it. There ought to be a, a burning desire about it that says, I just want to be absolutely sure. The problem with most of Christianity today, American Christianity at the very forefront, is that we take a very casual, nonchalant attitude toward Christianity. We, we take a very casual, nonchalant attitude toward discipleship. We take a very cavalier, very casual, nonchalant attitude toward worship. And worship is at the essence of the whole Christian life. Worship is at the essence of seeing God in all His glory in Jesus Christ and seeing that revealed and seeing our eyes open to see it and our hearts open to believe it. And if you really come to see that, there can be no casualness, there can be no nonchalantness to worship too many in the church today and it's it's evidenced by the statistics see worship is something to do if you don't have something better to do you know worship is something to do if there's not something more exciting that will conflict with it and interfere with it and if it does then hey we'll be back to worship next week they're going to be there next Sunday morning same time same place it's, it's always going to be there and I can just go next week or next month and many times that next, I'll go next week comes to, well, I won't make it this week, I'll go the next week. Well, not this week, next month maybe. And you go on and on and on. And there's just casualness about, it's really not that important. The writer here says, I want you to understand that 
Worship and discipleship is evidence of what has taken place in your heart. And if there is a casualness to worship and a casualness to discipleship and a casualness to walking with Christ, then that indicates that there is something deep, deeply wrong within what you consider your relationship with Christ. And that's what he's concerned about. He's concerned here that those who, who, taught, who, who desire to, uh, to just be religious will never enter into the reality of Christ. They'll never enter the reality of the gospel. They'll never enter into reality of the rest. He talks in verse 6, interestingly, and he's, he's still quoting Psalm 95 here, as I, I told you earlier as I read the passage for our call to worship. He's still talking about Psalm 95 because Psalm 95 carries with it that that understanding that God was furious. He was, he was angry at those people in the wilderness. So much so that the entire generation of Moses, all of Moses' contemporaries, including Moses himself, did not get to go into the promised land. They didn't get to enter the rest. Why? Because they were disobedient. Because their hearts had not really been changed. They liked the idea of getting out of Egypt until they got out of Egypt. And what was the first thing they did when they got out of Egypt and got out in the wilderness? Said, They've gone through the Red Sea. I mean, look here, man. You've got a bunch of, you've been given freedom, and you're walking toward a promise that God has made to you, and you've got Egyptians on your tail charging as fast as they can, changing their mind. You're not going to go. And all of a sudden, Roses, Moses raises his staff. The Red Sea parts, and the, dry, the land is dry, and they walk through on dry land, get to the other side. Moses lowers his staff. The waters come crashing back in, drowns the entire Egyptian army. Protected them unbelievably. Get out in the wilderness and get the opportunity to hear from God directly through Moses in the, in, the, in the law, the Ten Commandments. While Moses is away, communing with God, getting the law, what do they do? They decide, well, well, we're down here all by ourselves. Moses is up on the mountain, and we've we got to have, have a visual expression of God. I wonder if Moses had stayed there, if they would have just exalted him to that position. You know, I wonder sometimes. If, if Moses had just stayed down here, they would have finally said, Moses, we're going to put you on a pedestal. We're going to make a statue of you, and we're going to worship you. But he was gone. So they made the golden calf. And I won't go into all the details of that, but you know that. They, they, they built the calf. They started dancing around. They started worshiping the calf. Now, understand this. They saw the calf as a representation of Yahweh, God. They weren't saying we're going to worship a cow. They're saying this just represents to us something visual that we can worship to remind us of God. But that was unacceptable because you cannot express God in a true, uh, in a true way in any kind of visual manner. That's why you don't see in, in our places of worship any pictures of Jesus because we tend to focus on those rather than focus on the reality of who he is. And we get this in our mind and, and we just kind of think about that and I remember one person told me one time, I, I really can't pray unless I've got a, a picture of Jesus in front of me. And that scared me to death for that person because that's, that's a graven image that they began to use for a worship tomb. But anyway, they, they did the, 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 the calf and they danced around it and they, they sang and they chanted and, and Moses heard it from the distance. And when he came in, he became angry and he threw the tablets down. And, and God was angry at them because they had sold out literally their souls 
from the reality of the living God that they could know for the unreality of a calf made with gold and jewels and other things. And they wandered. Got a land over there that's filled with milk and honey. Got a land over there that is, is going to meet every need they ever had, every, every desire they ever had as far as food and rest goes. And yet they're wandering because of their disobedience. God says, well, I'm going to give you something to eat. So he gives them manna. And they eat manna for a while. And, and after a while, they get, get, get to thinking about what they had back in Egypt. And they said, hey, you know, Moses, back in Egypt, we had garlic and leeks and onions and all sorts of good things back there. And all we got out here is this old manna. Granted, it keeps us healthy and it, it, it nourishes us. And we go out in the morning and we pick it up. And, and it, it's good for the day, and we eat it. And, and I guess they probably fried some manna and boiled some manna and baked some manna and did whatever they could with the manna. But after a while, they said, we're tired of this manna. Why did you bring us out of Egypt where we could have had uh, uh, leeks and garlic and onions and all that good stuff? And here we are here eating the manna. We wish we had some quail. And they grumbled and they grumbled. So God said, they want quail. I'll give them quail. And they got quail up to their shoulders and I covered them up and they ate the quail and it says it was coming out of their nostrils there was so much quail. God just shook his head and said, you know, you, you disobedient generation, you will never enter into my rest. You are so focused on yourself. You are so focused on what you want and how you want it to be that your focus is not on me. Your focus is not on obedience. Your focus is not on walking with me in truth and finding my rest. Your focus is on you. How would you describe our generation, our culture, our society? I think the thing that would describe it to me is focused on self even in our worship focused on self you know one of the things I loved about this this musical that the choir just did it's I mean you know you can you can look at it one way and say well it was focusing on Fanny Crosby then if you saw that you missed it it was showing you what a woman who had every right as Todd pointed out had every right to be angry at God and bitter at God and just saying I'm gonna sit on the corner and pout she had every right to do that. But she didn't. You know why she didn't? It wasn't because she was such a good person. It wasn't because she said, well, I'll, I'll just rise above this. I'll pull myself up. I'll get me a little possibility thinking. And I'll think this is my best life now. And I'll just do it. By the way, I love to quote from John MacArthur this week at uh, Together for the Gospel. He said, you only have your best life now if you're going to hell think about it but she didn't do that but she didn't do that because she was good she didn't do that because she had a had some kind of personal strength that we don't that we lack she did it because the spirit of God touched her life the Holy Spirit touched her and drew her to faith in Christ just as Jesus said no one can come to me unless the father draws him and just as Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. I mean, there was a work of God in her life by the Holy Spirit to show her through eyes of faith when she didn't have any physical eyes to see, see the Savior. And worship the Savior. 
and to rest in the Savior. Fanny Crosby knew the rest that is promised here in, in Hebrews chapter 4, chapter 3 and chapter 4, because she knew Christ. And it was all contingent upon the gospel. That's what the writer wants you to understand. It's all contingent upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all contingent upon the work that he has done on the cross. It's not because you earned it. It's not because you said, well, I'll get in that rest one way or the other. I'll do it my way. No, it's because the Spirit of God touched you, changed your heart, and made you new in Christ. But he does give a sense of urgency in chapter 7. Excuse me, verse 7. He says in verse 7, he again fixes a certain day. And that day is today. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you sense the Spirit of God speaking to you, you hear his voice through his word, by his Holy Spirit, and the truth of the gospel begins to dawn in your life. He says, don't turn away from it. Don't harden your hearts. But if you sense the Spirit of God working in your life to show you the truth of the gospel, respond to that by faith. Believe in that today. Don't say, I'll do it tomorrow. Don't say, I'll do it next month. Don't say, I'll do it when I'm ready to do it. Do it when the Spirit of God brings that conviction into your life. That's what he's saying here. Be obedient today. And that's to you and me and everybody else that claims the name of Christ. Don't wait to say, well, I'll be obedient when I get a little older. I'll be obedient and live the Christian life when I, when I reach 50 or something like that. You know, I'll do it today because that's what God tells us to do. You know, the gospel is so clear. The gospel that this writer of Hebrews is so concerned about is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these who are being tempted to turn back to ritual and being tempted to turn back to a, to a law that cannot save, where Jesus Christ alone can save, he is concerned about that. And we'll see on through here how he, he takes the, the, the whole concept of, of, of Jesus our great high priest and Jesus our king and Jesus our prophet, and he molds that to show that everything that was accomplished on the cross is the only way of a right relationship with God. It's the only way. It's the only way to his rest. You don't get it by religion. You don't get it by ritual. You don't get it by doing something that makes you qualified. Remember what Paul said to the Ephesians, he made it clear, he said, and this God has qualified you to be in his covenant, to be in his family. This God has qualified you. You don't qualify yourself. God qualifies you by the work of the Spirit in your life. So what is, what is this gospel he's concerned about? What is the, the gospel that Jesus Christ came to correct what was so wrong in the world, in people's lives? You see, it goes back to creation. God created us. So he created Adam and Eve in the creation. He created us that we might have fellowship with him. But because of our parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, they fell, and with them fell the whole human race. And because of that, we are born into sin, and we are born sinners. We don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we are sinners. 
and we enter into that sin and we, we, we know that sin we see that sin it is, a, it is a demonstrable thing in our life and God says that's got to be fixed if anybody's ever going to have for fellowship with me again so he said I'll send my son and he sent his son into the world he sent his son and his son spent 33 years give or take a little on the face of the earth and three or so of that years, maybe three and a half, were, were lived out in ministry. And during those three and a half years, he taught, he preached, he, he healed, he, he did miracles and signs and wonders, and everybody stood back and said, oh, wow, isn't this amazing? And they would have loved to have had him as their king there in Jerusalem on the throne. They would have loved to have had that, but that wasn't why he came. He came and did all of that to live a perfect and sinless life and to go to the cross and die there in your place if you believe took down from the cross placed in a grave treated as dead because he was dead and then as we celebrated a couple of weeks ago he rose forth from the grave alive to live forevermore now all of that was done that sin might be dealt with all of that was done so that you might enter into his rest. A rest that is now and not yet. A rest that we enter into when we come to faith in Christ and we say we trust him, we believe in him, his Holy Spirit does a work in our heart, does a work in our spirit, and we trust him by grace, through faith, in Christ. And we are made new creatures. Not perfect creatures but new creatures. New in that we can now know him. And Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you. This is eternal life, that they may know you, talking to the Father. And now through Jesus Christ, we can know the Father. Through Jesus Christ, we have a relationship with the Father. Through Jesus Christ, we can enter into the Father's rest. To all who believe, to all who believe with all their heart, to all who believe with all their soul, with all who believe with all their strength and their might, love the Lord your God, they can enter in. So on what basis do we know that? We know that, he says in the last part of this passage, verses 12 and 13, we know that because of the Word of God. He quotes the Word of God. He treats Scripture as the Word of God. He never doubts it. He never questions it. He says, this is the Word of God, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare in the, in, to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. spend a long time on those two verses so we'll probably come back to them but he's talking about the gospel there he's talking about the word of God in its totality which is a gospel message from Genesis to Revelation he's talking about the word being powerful the word being active the word being able to do in your life what you cannot do yourself the word being able to do stuff in your life that will change you and make you new that will separate whatever needs to be separated in all of life from your life 
by the word of Christ the word of truth the word of hope that comes from the very heart and mouth of God there's a lot of things going on today that questions the word you see it in the Time magazines and the Newsweek magazines and the, the Jesus Seminar and other great scholars will come out and say, well, we now have reason to doubt that maybe they didn't really believe that it was a atoning death back in the early church, that probably those gospel stories are stories that grew up around 200, 300 years after the fact. And they question it. I was listening to one of the speakers this week as he talked about the the church fathers now, the church fathers are those who are beyond the apostles and in the early stages of the church the first and second and third century in there when some say well the gospel just jumped on over to it didn't really grow up until about the third or fourth century there's one that he quoted and, and it was the, from the epistle of Diogenes, Diogenes written without much argument from the scholars in around the year A.D. 117. Not long after all the events in the New Testament take place. This is how he describes the gospel. I love it. He says, When our unrighteousness was fulfilled, and it had been made perfectly clear that its wages, punishment and death, were to be expected, then the season arrived during which God had decided, decided to reveal at last his goodness and power. Oh, the surprising kindness and love of God. He did not hate us or reject us or bear a grudge against us. Instead, he was patient and forbearing. In his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? Did you hear that? What else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Oh. Oh. oh, the sweet exchange, he says. My sin exchanged for his righteousness taking place at the cross, that, that, that the one who knew no sin might become sin on our behalf, that, that we might become the righteousness of God. We who have no righteousness might be covered by His. That's what the Word teaches us. That's what the Word says. 
And that is what we must come to believe and come to trust with all our heart and with all our life in if we are to enter his rest. It's not about ritual. It's not about religion. It's not about what you can do. It's about what he has done and is doing in your life. Let's pray together. Just for a moment, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want you just to consider, do I know the rest that is in Christ? Do I know not being a Baptist or being a church member or listening to sermons or singing songs or whatever, Do I know the rest that is in Christ alone? The moment we're going to sing, open my eyes that I may see. That is a prayer. If you're here this morning and, and you don't know Christ, never come into a relationship with him, that ought to be the prayer you're praying. Lord, open my eyes. I can't open them myself. I'm as blind as Fanny Crosby was. Because I'm blinded by sin and disobedience. Open my eyes that I may see your glory and your salvation. Let me see. I want to see Jesus. Father, open my eyes. If you're here this morning, a member of Grace Baptist Church, I, I tell you, that's got to be your prayer too. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may see the reality of my relationship with you in clarity. Because we need to be fearing that, that it's not what it ought to be. That's what the writer says here. This is the word of God. We need to be fearing that it's not what we ought to be in Christ and it's, it's, it, we got to see him Lord open my eyes to see all of my, any of my needs I have open my eyes to see my disobedience my casualness my complacency in this relationship Lord cleanse me of it take it away Father, we pray you would open our eyes. I pray for anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that your Holy Spirit will move in their heart and change that heart and draw them to faith in Christ. They would profess that by baptism before men and women for the world. Father, I pray you teach us, strengthen us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.